This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to Late Boomers. Today on our episode, we are going to explore the world of art with our guest, Joan Weinstein, the director of the J. Paul Getty Foundation, one of the leading foundations supporting art history and conservation on a fully international basis. And I'm Mary Elkins. Joan was appointed to this coveted post after an international search. She's the author of several books and articles on the history of modern art in Weimar, Germany, and has been the recipient of fellowships from the German Academic Exchange Service, the J. Paul Getty Postdoctoral Fellowship Program, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Welcome, Joan. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to join you. Thanks nice for to being have here. you. And please tell us what the mission of the J. Paul Getty Foundation is and about your background and how you came to your role there. Well, the Getty Foundation is one of the four programs of the J. Paul Getty Trust, which is our overarching organization. And it includes the Getty Museum, the Getty Research Institute, the Getty Conservation Institute, and the Foundation. And the Foundation fulfills the philanthropic mission of the Getty Trust. And so we fund in the areas in which the Getty is active, and that is art history, conservation, and museum practice, and we fund um, internationally all over the world. That's Great. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the former president and CEO of the J. Paul Getty Trust has said, you have a deep knowledge of the visual arts and strategic philanthropy. What is strategic philanthropy, <laughs> and how does it apply to your work on a local and global basis? So strategic philanthropy is a model of philanthropy that came into practice roughly 10 to 20 years ago. Many funders originally were what we called over the transom grant makers. You have lots of different grant categories. People look on your website or in the old days in your brochure, they would send in letters saying, could you fund my project? And you would review them and then respond. In um, about, as I say, about 20 years ago, philanthropy started to change and it wanted to have a greater impact. And it started to use the word strategic, which um, I think articulated, it, it was the idea that you articulate at the outset, clearly defined goals for any grants or grant initiative that you wanna do. And then only then will you really figure out the right strategies for that work and the methods to assess impact. And I think one of the real bywords at that point was measurable impact. Hmm. Ah. So funders had funded for centuries, but how do you know what impact you've really had? Right. Yeah. 
And it's actually a slippery slope because it sometimes we get so caught up in metrics, those measurable outcomes, and not every change can be measured in that way. And we try to hold on to those qualitative changes um, in addition to those quantitative changes. Difficult. Yeah. Right? That's a whole science in itself. And you've been the creative force behind the Getty's Pacific Standard Time, Art in L.A., 1945 to 1980. Can you talk about that and its reach? So that's a great example of how we develop a grant initiative and uh, how we measure impact and then how we think about it moving forward. Hmm. Pacific Standard Time actually began as a very modest project. We started to learn that the history of LA artists and gallerists and collectors from the period after the Second World War, so from roughly 1945 to 1980, was starting to disappear. As a matter of fact, I remember a conversation where a wonderful uh, supporter of the arts in LA, Lynn Keenholz, who really promoted Los Angeles art internationally, And she told me that a gallerist had died and his widow had actually put his records out in the trash to be picked up. And she, you know, and it was the, the, oh my God, we have to rush over and save those records. And we started to realize that as that generation was aging, we were about to lose an amazing history. Wow. We began a project to survey archival records. So what was already in public institutions at special collections at UCLA, at special collections at Stanford, other universities, mm-hmm. what was at the Getty itself and what still remained in the hands of the owners? And had they thought about transferring those to public institutions so that they could av- be available for scholars in the future? Based on the survey that we did, we then began supporting the public institutions to uh, arrange and describe their archives. That's when you take that archive, you open up all those boxes, you figure out what's in there, you you label them, you create an inventory, you now put them online so that scholars actually know what you have. And we found them in places everywhere from the Archives of American Art in Washington, D.C. to home institutions here at some of our museums locally at places like CalArts. And we supported them to catalog those archives. As we started digging into those archives, we started to realize that they told a really different history of the development of modern art in our country. That story had always been told from the perspective of New York. Right. Mm-hmm. New York invented modern art in this country, and it's what put it on the map after World War II. And that narrative was really influenced by the model of French art, you know, cubism and uh, impressionism, and its further development when it came to New York. And what we realized is that Los Angeles had a very different trajectory, influenced a lot by surrealism and by the collectors, the Ahrensbergs here in Southern California early on. Mm -hmm. And 
it really led to the creation of some very new art forms in Southern California. First of all, Southern California was the first uh, feminist art program in the country. Really? We had the big, yes. We had the beginning of Chicano mural art in Southern California. We had the light and space movement. Artists like James Terrell, um, uh, you know, so many others that worked on a project uh, of um, that was called an art, art and technology program that was actually begun out of LACMA. Hmm. And so we started to see this very different history that was impacting contemporary art. So this was not just rescuing this history, but seeing how this history impacted contemporary art being produced in Southern California, which is one of the most vibrant art cities in the world and most diverse art cities in the world. Mm. And from there, we thought, well, we should bring these histories to Southern California audiences. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's support a few exhibitions. And we talked to some of the larger museums, MOCA, LACMA, Hammer, and they were all really enthusiastic. And they said, boy, we've had exhibitions we've been dying to do for years. We'd love some time in the archives and then do these exhibitions. And we started to support two years of research and planning for them through grants from the Getty Foundation, and then also grants to mount these exhibitions. But word slowly got around, and then others came calling. And (laughs) soon, you know, eight exhibitions became 24 exhibitions, and it became an open call for applications. (laughs) And in the end, I think we supported almost 40 exhibition projects. Oh, that's amazing. And then other museums said at the last minute, you know, we have some shows we'd like to do to add to your roster of exhibitions. And we thought we really need to do a large marketing and communications campaign. We need to let everyone know what we're doing. And I, I liken it a little bit to the old uh, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland movies of mm-hmm. you get the barn and I'll make the <laughs> costumes and we'll put on a show. Mm-hmm. And we were sort of inventing it by the seat of our pants. <laughs> and this was a collaboration with our research institute. And we had so much fun bringing these exhibitions and programs to Southern California. We also did a very large performance art festival that included a spectacular fireworks artwork by Judy Chicago that was done out at Pomona College. Mm. Many others, there was a performance art festival that lasted for 10 days and performance art was really one of those Southern California based artistic disciplines. And we did some wonderful promotional um, materials in collaboration with um, an advertising agency including a fantastic uh, video that can still be seen on YouTube with Ice Cube. With Ice Cube. Is Ice Cube talking about the impact of Ray and Charles Eames, Southern California icons in design and architecture, and their impact on his early thinking. And he was studied architectural draftsmanship. And he started talking about the Eames as doing a kind of mashup as current recording artists were doing. And it's just a lovely video. 
We also had Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers driving through L.A. with the artist Ed Ruscha and talking about their visions of Los Angeles. So some really innovative and wonderful um, videos. And this was before the real days of social media. And it was, it was hard to get the, I wish we had had Instagram then. It was hard to get these videos out there. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. you could have um, used is, it. How, how would the, our audience access those videos? Just by going on YouTube and looking up the artist's names? If they go on YouTube and they put in Pacific Standard Time, Getty, and either Ice Cube or Anthony Kiedis, they'll be able to find them. And they're mm -hmm. great fun. And what year were, was that happening? That was 2011. Oh, yeah. And we, we, you know, once it opened and it actually, um, as word grew about it, we had a lot of international visitors. Uh, a lot of museums um, in Europe brought their uh, boards to Los Angeles specifically to see these art exhibitions and it was uh, also covered extensively in the press. There were more than 1,000 press articles all over the world. And it really put Los Angeles, it helped put Los Angeles on the map. We were not solely responsible for this, but it really mm -hmm. helped to put Los Angeles on the map as an art destination and a real art city. You know, you Joan, I was in Europe and I saw one of the... Um, exhibition not the exhibition but one of the pieces in a museum it, i think it was in france could have been somewhere else but uh i no, remember it, seeing it yeah it was in france and uh one of the lovely things that happened as a result of pacific standard time and was never really the goal that we started out with was that many of the artists who were so prominent in that period had their careers really reinvigorated mm. and began to get major shows on the East Coast and in Europe, and their careers are still thriving. And do you think there's an appetite to repeat some of these exhibitions? So what we did was almost as soon as it opened, our wonderful board of trustees said to us, when is the next one? <laughs> so that was meant as a one-time thing. But we got together with our museum partners and we started thinking about it. And we came up with the idea of, some, of doing something focused on Latin American and Latinx art. Los Angeles um, was a city of New Spain and it was yeah. originally part of Mexico. We are the, one of the largest cities in Latin America. <laughs> and we... In 2017, we opened PST LALA, it was, as it was called, and there were more than 70 exhibitions in that one. It was overwhelming in many regards, but came at a moment in our nation's history where it was really important to say that we are a city that welcomes immigrants, that has a long history of uh, shifting borders. <laughs> And it was a really um, wonderful celebratory moment in the city with many, many programs and concerts and exhibitions. And we're now in preparation for the next Pacific Standard Time. That was the question I wanted to ask yeah. you. <laughs> Me too. And it will be in 2024, fingers crossed, COVID permitting. And it is focused on the intersection of art and science. And again, we came up with this topic in consultation with museum partners. 
And this time we will have a number of scientific institutions collaborating with us. You, many people do not usually think of Southern California as the location for science. We're having a we deep, have long Yale. We have not only JPL. And we have Tesla space exploration. We have the Hubble telescope here. Yeah. We <laughs> and have. there are really interesting, I, I think Southern California has a really interesting history in science that I've only begun to know about through this project. So it, it, the founding of places like Caltech or Scripps Institute were really founded on a very different model than places like MIT. It was founded on the idea of combining the humanities and the sciences, of having a humanistic approach and knowledge as you approach those sciences. And so that's something that was long ago in our history and in the kind of DNA of Southern California, which is a wonderful thing to revive in, at this moment. We, the Hubble Space you know, Telescope allowed us to understand <laughs> that we... We're not it in the universe. Yeah. Um, we have JPL. We now have um, uh, Silicon Beach here in Southern California. And we have the history of the aerospace industry. And just think of the moving picture industry, which in, you know, involved a lot of scientific discoveries. Yes. Yeah. And one of the hallmarks of Pacific Standard Time is we allow all of our museum partners to choose their own topics. And so we're always surprised when those applications for funding come in. And the, the roster of exhibitions for the next PST is really wonderful and wide ranging. And it's everything from the history of art and science. So going back to... Um, Islamic art, where you had practitioners much like Leonardo combined, was an artist and a scientist. That same um, combination existed in the Islamic world, which we don't know as much about here. But also how, um, how artists help to visualize science. Oh, you know, everyone couldn't see what was under the microscope and it was artists who helped create the visualizations or explorers went to distant continents and studied the flora and fauna and they created illustrations of those to bring back to Europe. Oh, that'll be fascinating. I'm, I'll look forward to that. I'm assuming it'll be all over LA and every it, museum. It will be from Santa Barbara down to San Diego. And we also have some wonderful thematic threads, as you can imagine, that deal with climate change and environmental justice, with artificial intelligence, both its uses and the abuses of you know, wow. the threats of artificial intelligence and also a really interesting group of exhibitions on indigenous forms of knowledge huh. and how they complement what we call Western science. But there were many ways in which indigenous communities understand the land, understand the environment that are helping us restore it in this era of climate change after we've had so much destruction that came from so-called scientific progress. 
Yeah, that's true. Veering away slightly here, talk a little bit about your grants and your grant initiatives, and also about the Hurricane Katrina uh, situation where you act in New Orleans in 2005. Um, your res the Getty had a big response to that, I heard. Yes, we're, we're, you know, we're typically not an emergency funder. Um, and Katrina posed a real challenge to us because the cultural heritage of that city is so important. And we went down there, actually, it was when the first hotel actually opened after the hurricane. And it was about, it was a little under three weeks after Katrina. And I was um, privileged to be among a small group of St Getty staff that went to New Orleans and I have to say, it's something that I will, those, those images are seared in my memory forever. And we went around from cultural institution to cultural institution, and they were dealing with their own immediate crises at their own institutions. Many of them were dealing with the devastation of losing their own homes, even as they were trying to care for their own museums or cultural institutions. We were bringing messages back and forth between them because they hadn't even had an opportunity to speak to their colleagues. Hmm. And we decided that a lot of relief money was pouring in and that we would focus on recovery. And we, the first thing we did was to bring together the executive directors and board chairs of a number of the institutions and allow them the opportunity to speak to one another. <laughs> they hadn't had an opportunity to, um, to share their emotions, their impressions, and to start thinking about a way to chart a path forward. In those few days together, they started imagining new ways they could collaborate. We took them through some scenario planning. What if your audiences come back, but the money doesn't come back? What happens vice versa? You know, so many people had left the city. And through that scenario planning, they, um, found some really concrete ways to collaborate, including back of the house function. You know, I have a terrific financial account, you know, an accountant and, um, you know, budgeting specialist. They can take on some of the smaller places as well and help them out. You know, one mm -hmm. of the larger museums said so many of them had lost staff. So they started sharing uh, publications manager to help them with their publications. We then gave grants in conservation, but also for strategic planning so they could chart a way forward. And then also some funding for some key projects that came out of that strategic um, planning. There are probably some of our listeners that don't realize there are two Getty Museums in Los Angeles, the Getty Center in Brentwood and the Getty Villa in Malibu. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about them, about their collections and how they differ and, and also speak a little bit about the LA Arts Recovery Fund? Yes, so I am always delighted to speak about our museum, although our museum director does it much more eloquently oh. than I ever could. Um, we have two <laughs> wonderful sites in Brentwood and in Malibu. And Malibu is the original um, site of the Getty, uh, designed originally by Mr. Getty himself, although he never set foot on the property oh. in his lifetime. And it originally housed his private collection. It now houses the antiquities, which greatly expanded from the time that Mr. Getty um, began his collection of antiquities. Uh, 
And it is a spectacular venue to see that work. It is a beautiful site with beautiful views of the ocean. And um, one of the most delightful settings to see art. Uh The rest of the collections moved up to the Getty Center in Brentwood when the Getty Center was planned. And the Getty Center houses not just the museum, but our research institute, conservation institute, and the foundation. And in Brentwood, you'll see our uh, collection of art from medieval Europe to about 1900 is the major period in which we collect, except for photography. And we collect the entire history of photography from its beginnings to the present. And we have one of the very best photography collections in the entire country. And it continues to grow and expand all the time. And as you both know, we have an absolutely lovely setting up in Brentwood as well. Beautiful gardens designed by Robert Irwin, our campus that uh, with lovely architecture designed by Richard Meyer and some of the most most breathtaking views of the city high up on the hill. Yeah, they are the best gorgeous. Just see from miles in every direction. Yeah. So you you asked a little bit about the LA Arts Recovery Fund. They we actually we took our learnings from New Orleans and we applied them to the situation in Los Angeles when COVID hit. You know, almost overnight all of our museums and cultural institutions shut down in March, 2020. You know, our museums closed their doors, theaters shuttered, and so many places had to lay off the majority of their staff in a short period of time. And it was a crisis moment. And we really felt that even though we're an international organization, we have a very special commitment to our home city of Los Angeles. We, I, I, I got a call from some friends in New York that gave me a heads up that New York was going to announce a $75 million recovery fund for the city, funded by the major foundations there, Bloomberg, Mellon, mm. Ford, and some others. And this was not just the arts, but um, in all sectors. And we immediately got to work and thought, what can we do in Los Angeles to help our cultural organizations We're a visual arts organization, but we know that the visual arts museum sector can't survive without all the other arts. So our trustees already at the end of March committed $10 million for a recovery fund. We were then joined by a number of other local foundations and eventually by some national foundations as well. And we were able to award $36 million in grants to arts organizations across all artistic media, visual, performing, uh, literary arts, to arts nonprofits throughout Southern California. And again, it was not that emergency funding. It was not relief, but recovery money. And they were, places were getting PPP money. They were getting other kinds of emergency funding from state and national government. But this recovery funding was operating budget, unrestricted operating budget to use as they saw fit. And it was for the majority of them, two years of funding, but for uh, a group of them, three years of operating support. And that was part of a challenge grant from the Ford Foundation for 
cultural organizations uh, that are BIPOC organizations, so organizations of color, and that had been chronically underfunded for decades um, in our city. Uh, yeah, on that note, what do you see as the future of the Getty in regards to diversity and inclusion and utilizing the new technologies such as digital platforms or NFTs, for example? So you've hit on the issues that are really so important to the museum sector right now. Mm -hmm. Museums everywhere are really facing the challenge of diversifying their staff, of being inclusive, of larger places helping smaller places. We have to make sure that everyone has access to art. And it is something that is a priority of anyone who's working in the cultural sector right now. And for the LA Arts Recovery Fund, we actually had a, a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our funding. The Getty Foundation for 30 years has run a program that is now called the Getty Marrow Undergraduate Internship Program. Marrow being the name of Deborah Marrow, Oh, who was yeah. my predecessor as director of the Getty Foundation. And this has been an internship program for undergraduate college students locally to introduce them to careers in museums and visual arts organizations with a goal to diversifying the staff of those museums. And we're now beginning to see the fruits of those efforts with many of the alumni of our program heading smaller cultural organizations. The other question that you have about the digital is also we've one of the things we've all learned during COVID is the reach you can have through digital media, mm -hmm. a kind of reach. I think we all kind of knew was there, but we're really not totally exercising that muscle. And so we uh, it's another way of reaching diverse audiences is um, through the digital and we can bring art experiences to so many online. It was one of the things that really struck me in the earliest days of COVID. Everyone went online seeking out cultural experiences, whether it was listening to music, seeing art exhibitions, participating in art making, getting instruction online, sharing your work. Um, you know, we wanted connection. We wanted solace. We wanted healing. We wanted things that could stimulate our minds and the arts do all of that. The other new thing in this world are NFTs. And I, I, I actually remember a conversation at the Getty and um, one of our trustees very presciently asked us, you know, well, what are you thinking about, about NFTs? And everyone went, what is that? <laughs> and, and many cultural institutions are late to the game. And some institutions like the Uffizi in Florence have been looking at them as ways to fundraise, to monetize, you know, you too can own, you know, the official replication of the X artwork mm -hmm. through an NFT. Yeah. This is going to be a really, really interesting space to watch. Um, it's also, it's become a way that artists can directly sell their work and benefit in the proceeds of their secondary market. Oftentimes an artist sells an artwork to someone, that collector may sell it on the secondary market mm -hmm. and the artist does not participate in that increase in value. NFTs right. have created a model 
where artists actually participate in the proceeds of that secondary market. So mm. that's going to be another really interesting space to watch. Yeah, because they can benefit every time it resells. Exactly. And could you discuss the museum's conservation initiatives and what is the difference between preservation and conservation? Wow, what a good question. <laughs> so we have a we have a conservation, you know, our museum does conservation of their own collections. And we also have a conservation institute that does conservation projects around the world. And they're not they're not the doctors, you know, of conservation who run around fixing things. They, they, they do really select projects that can set models for others to follow, that can, you know, um, do training locally in places that might not have opportunities for training to, to give skills to people on the ground, particularly in parts of the global south that might not have professional conservation training programs. And the words conservation and preservation are used differently in different parts of the world. So some places use them interchangeably. Sometimes preservation is used to describe um, preservation of built heritage of architecture um, and conservation used much more in for, you know, artworks in museums. But mm -hmm. they, they, they have to, they are used interchangeably in some places and very specifically other places. And so oftentimes we have to switch out the word depending on the, uh -huh. the, the audience that we're, we're aiming at. And the, the foundation and the Getty Conservation Institute have partnered on a number of projects to address conservation needs worldwide. Uh, we worked for almost 10 years on mosaic conservation on archaeological sites in North Africa and the Middle East. We began that project right before the Arab Spring. We have the worst timing in the entire world. Oh, oh. The first project was supposed to take place in Damascus. <laughs> and, it, and it was scheduled to begin one week after the first protest movement was so violently suppressed there. And we were able to move the training course to Italy. So we, we are nimble in what we do. Uh -huh. uh, we've also had another recent initiative that's ongoing, in, which is about conserving modern architecture. We know very well how to conserve older buildings. There are lots of models. There are lots of studies. We know the materials. Modern architecture was made out of some of this, you know, plastics and glass and other materials which are not usual and how do you for instance how do you take a beautiful modernist home with beautiful glass sheet glass windows and doors completely open to the outside world and it's a very specific kind of light that it lets in and now we need to replace it because it's either old but also because Modern um, ecological demands <laughs> the, that, that, you know, it's freezing cold and you're using a lot of energy. So what are best practices? Plastics degrade and you need to, you know, do you switch it out for something completely new or do you try to save the old? Yeah, um, in a way you've kind of answered my question here, which is why is it important to preserve and conserve art? 
and how does it benefit the world? But you've kind of answered that. But, you know, I think I think what you're getting at is something that's even more important, though. Um, our, our cultural heritage is a way that we can remember the past. We can understand the past, but we cannot lose sight of the past. I look at the contemporary moment and I look at the threat to cultural heritage in so many parts of the world. Um, we're faced with it at this absolute moment um, mm-hmm. as monuments in Ukraine are threatened. We already know of one museum that was burned to the ground. Um, uh-huh. yes. so, so with that is erased, not just Ukrainian heritage, but the heritage of mankind. It's, it's all of our common cultural heritage. How do we understand one another if those histories are erased? Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons that the Getty really believes this is a priority. And to also help people around the world gain the, sca- gain the skills to preserve their own heritage and to tell their own stories about it. That's fantastic. Yeah. And Joan, what would you like our listeners' main takeaway to be today? Art matters. Oh. We, we, we think of art as something, you know, that is the cherry on top, you know, the, the, the bow, the ribbon you tie around it. I think we've all felt through COVID how art helps us make meaning of the world. Art can be a tool to battle repression, to rally people around a cause. It's what reminds us of our common humanity. And we need to understand that it's essential. And we need to, underst- we need to support art and artists and heritage and not have it be the secondary thought. Wonderful. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Joan Weinstein, director of the J. Paul Getty Foundation, whose mission is to support greater understanding and preservation of the visual arts in Los Angeles and around the world. Thank you so much, Joan. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much also. And you can learn about the Getty Foundation at their website, www.getty.edu slash foundation. And we'd like to remind our listeners to follow Late Boomers on Instagram and follow your hosts at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. And please also email us by visiting our website, lateboomers.com. Biz, B-I-Z. Let us know what you are enjoying and whether we have inspired you, challenged you, and broadened your vision of the world. Thanks again, Joan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. 
We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.